First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we do, we do acknowledge that you are a great God. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you for the passage we're looking at here in Romans this morning. I thank you, Lord, that your word doesn't go forward without accomplishing its purpose. So we look to you now, Lord, and we commit our time to, to you, Lord. We pray that you'd accomplish your purpose in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage we're looking at today contains the key verses in Paul's letter to the Romans. They've literally changed the lives of some of the most influential men in Christian history. In the early 1500s, there was a German monk who wrestled with how guilty he felt before God. He would even whip himself because he thought he deserved to suffer. To suffer. When he read... Romans 1, 17, he said that it made him, quote, hate God because it speaks of God's righteousness. He thought that God demanded that same righteousness from him and being perfectly righteous seemed like an impossible demand. As we look at the gospel in this passage, we'll see how it changed the life of this monk. As we consider Romans 1, verses 8 through 17 today, we're going to split the passage into two sections. First of all, in verses 8 through 15, we're going to look at why Paul wanted to go to Rome. And then in verses 16 and 17, we're going to look at what Paul wanted the Romans to know. So first, we're going to look at why Paul wanted to go to Rome. We're going to look at four reasons that Paul wanted to go to Rome. The first reason is this. Their faith was being talked about everywhere. In verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. Paul begins this section by thanking God for all those in the church at Rome. That doesn't seem unusual if you've read others of Paul's letters. He begins most of his letters to the churches like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, by giving thanks for them. The difference between those letters and the letter to the Romans is that Paul had been to all those cities. He had never been to Rome. How could he thank God for them when he hadn't met most of them? He could do that because as he notes here, 
the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. Their faith was being talked about everywhere. Wouldn't you like to have people say that about you, that your faith was being talked about everywhere? In verse 9, Paul goes on to say, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you. So, Paul says here that he not only, that the, the news of their faith was being reported in all the world, but that he constantly mentioned them. The Greek word translated constantly or unceasingly in some other translations denotes that not much time passed between his prayers for them. These saints were constantly in his thoughts and prayers. So the first reason Paul wanted to go to Rome was that their faith was being talked about everywhere. The second reason he wanted to go to Rome was that he had been prevented from going there. In verse 10, Paul goes on to say, always asking in my prayers that if that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He says that I may now at last succeed in coming to you. That shows us that he had wanted to come there to them in the past. Later on in verse 13, we see that Paul said, now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now. So even though Paul had heard about their faith, he had wanted to go there, he had planned to, he had been prevented from going there up until the time he had written the letter. What might have prevented Paul in coming to them? By the time this letter was written, Paul had already completed three missionary journeys. He'd traveled thousands of miles without the benefits of trains, planes, or automobiles. Now, we may think that we're busy, but Paul was a busy guy, and he followed God's, long, God's leading as he brought the gospel to many places in the ancient world. One obstacle that might have prevented Paul from preaching in Rome before this was the imperial edict of AD 49 that expelled the Jews from Rome. So we actually can read about that in Acts chapter 18 in verses 1 and 2. Paul says there, after this, he, or it's not Paul says, I guess Luke wrote this, after this, he referring to Paul, he left Athens and went to Corinth where he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So this is the imperial edict in AD 49. It's referring to Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And since Paul was a Jew, at that point in time, he wouldn't have been welcomed in Rome either. But regardless whether that was one of the reasons that Paul had been prevented from going to Rome or if it was just his missionary work all around the ancient world, for some reason he had been prevented from going there. A third reason Paul wanted to go to Rome was this. He wanted to minister to them. Paul wanted to minister to them. In verse 11 and 12 it says, For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. We notice Paul says here he really wanted to see them. I want very much to see you. He wanted to strengthen them. He wanted to impart some spiritual gift to them. And he wanted them to be encouraged by his faith, but he also wanted to be encouraged by their faith, which was being talked about everywhere. Now, when you meet with other Christians, do you come to give something to them? Or do you just come to get something for yourself. 
Paul's attitude was that he wanted to encourage the Romans, but he also expected to be encouraged by them. He goes on in verse 13 to say, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul had been appointed by God to preach not to his own people, the Jews, but to the non-Jews or Gentiles, just as his ministry among the Gentiles in Greece and Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey had borne much fruit, he wanted to bear fruit in Rome. So we've seen three reasons Paul wanted to go to Rome. Their faith was being talked about everywhere. He'd been prevented from going there, and he wanted to minister to them. The fourth and final reason we see here is that Paul felt obligated to preach the gospel. He, he felt obligated to preach the gospel. In verses 14 and 15, he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. As the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul had an obligation to minister in Rome. He would have fulfilled that obligation sooner, but his other labors had kept him from it. Tim Keller describes Paul's gospel obligation as follows. I think it's illustrative to think about how I can be in debt to you. First, you may have lent me $100. I am in debt to you until I pay it back. But second, someone else may have given me $100 to pass on to you. And I am in debt to you until I hand it on. It is in this second sense that Paul is obligated to everyone everywhere. God has shared the gospel with him, but God has commissioned him to declare it to others. Paul owes people the gospel. So did you catch that? God had shared the gospel with Paul and commissioned him to take it to others. That's why he felt obligated to share the gospel. He goes on to say, I'm obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. You may ask, who were the barbarians? The Jews spoke of all who were not Jews as Gentiles or as Greeks, and the Greek people spoke of anyone who didn't speak the Greek language as a barbarian. The word barbarians derived from the repetition of the sound bar. To a cultured Greek, other languages sounded like gibberish, and they were mimicked by saying bar, 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 bar. So essentially, Paul was saying, I'm obligated to everyone, whether they're Greek, whether they're barbarian, I'm, mar I'm obligated to all people, no matter what their background is, no matter whether they're wise or they're foolish. And not only did Paul feel obligated to come to Rome and share with him, but he was also eager to do so. He said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Do we follow Paul's example in these areas, feeling obligated to share the gospel with others? and also being eager to do so. Truth be told, I often fall short in these areas. Paul's eagerness to preach the gospel of the Romans reminds me of the old hymn, I love to tell the story. The chorus goes, I love to tell the story, will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. So we've looked at four reasons Paul wanted to go to Rome. Their faith was being talked about everywhere. He'd been prevented from going there. He wanted to minister to them, and he felt obligated to preach the gospel. In verses 16 and 17, as we said, we're going to look at the key verses and also the theme of the entire book of Romans. It tells us what Paul wanted the Romans to know in a nutshell. 
Verse 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul said he was making known to, them, known to them the gospel. He said the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And Paul says here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He clearly wanted the Romans to know that. Now, why would he be ashamed of the gospel? Why might he be ashamed of the gospel? Warren Wiersbe said this, why would Paul even be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? For one thing, the gospel was identified with a poor Jewish carpenter who was crucified. The Romans had no special appreciation for the Jews, and crucifixion was the lowest form of execution given a criminal. Why put your faith in a Jew who was crucified? Along these same lines, John MacArthur said this, Although every true believer knows it's a serious sin to be ashamed of his Savior and Lord, we also know the difficulty of avoiding that sin. When we have the opportunity to speak for Christ, we often do not. Can you relate to that? I know that I can. We know the gospel is unattractive, intimidating, and repulsive to the natural unsaved person. The gospel exposes man's sin, wickedness, depravity, and lostness. To the sinful heart of unbelievers, the gospel does not appear to be good news, but bad. And when they first hear it, they often react with disdain against the one presenting it or throw out arguments and theories against it. For that reason, fear of men and not being able to handle their arguments is doubtlessly the single greatest snare in witnessing. Regardless of the difficulty we may have in speaking up and sharing the gospel, Paul made it clear to the Romans he was not ashamed of the gospel. He wanted them to know that. He wasn't ashamed of the message that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Not only did Paul want the Romans to know he wasn't ashamed of the gospel, he goes on to communicate three truths about the gospel to them. The first truth is that the gospel is God's power for salvation. The gospel is God's power for salvation. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. The word for power, the Greek word is dunamis. We get our word dynamite from that word. So Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power or the dynamite of God for salvation. It's what makes salvation happen. In writing the Corinthians, Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. The word of the cross that Christ died for our sins is the power or dynamite of God to us who are being saved. So Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What is salvation? The Greek word, soteria, can be translated as deliverance, preservation, or safety. A simple def definition is this. Salvation is being saved from God's wrath, his anger, or displeasure with sin. I'll say that again. Salvation is being saved from God's wrath, his anger, or his displeasure with sin. The German monk we mentioned earlier understood and hated God because he was afraid that he couldn't be saved 
from God's wrath. The gospel is the, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I think it's helpful to realize salvation essentially has three aspects or three tenses, past, present, and future. We've been saved in the past. Past salvation, past salvation is from the penalty of sin. Present salvation is from the power of sin and future salvation from the presence of sin. So we can look back in the past and we can see that we've been saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God in hell. In the present, we can see that God is saving us from sin's power over us. God wants to set us free from the power of sin and death. And we can look to the future and see that one day we'll be saved from the very presence of sin, since we'll be with God and He's so holy that sin can't be in His presence. So the first truth about the gospel, Paul wanted them to know, is that the gospel is God's power for salvation, to save him from God's wrath. The second truth he wanted them to know was that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. Paul uses the term righteous or righteousness over 30 times in the book of Romans. What is the righteousness of God? Theologian John Stott said the righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own, but his. I'll say that again. The righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own, but his. Another commentator said that the righteousness of God is a relational concept. He said we could define it as the act by which God brings people into a right relationship with himself. So the first true truth that Paul wanted the Romans to know is that the gospel is God's power for salvation and that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. The final truth about the gospel that Paul wanted the Romans to know that we see here is that the gospel is received by faith. The gospel is received by faith. Verse 17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I think there's now that phrase from faith to faith, there's several possible interpretations of the phrase from faith to faith. I think the best one is that the Christian life is a life of faith from beginning to end or from start to finish. The righteous will live by faith. You can see on the overhead, it's actually in bold there, the Christian Standard Bible uses bold to refer to anything that's quoted from the Old Testament. It's actually a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It's repeated in the New Testament three times, here in Romans 1.17, but also in Galatians 3.11 and Hebrews 10.38. And the quote that the righteous will live by faith makes it clear that the gospel is received by faith. I began by referring to a German monk in the 1500s who said Romans 1.17 made him, quote, hate God because it speaks of God's righteousness. But later that monk, many of you may know that it's Martin Luther, wrote the following about Romans 1.17. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that 
the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies or declares us righteous through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on new meaning. And whereas the justice of God had filled me with hate before, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Now, when Martin Luther understood that the gospel is received by faith, the gospel changed everything in his life, as you can see from his own statement. Several centuries later, an ordained minister in the Church of England by the name of John Wesley was similarly confused about the meaning of the gospel and was searching for a genuine experience of salvation. On May 24th, 1738, he wrote in his journal, I went unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to Romans. While he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. The lives of two of the greatest men in Christian history, Martin Luther and John Wesley, were changed when they realized the gospel is received by faith. The gospel changes everything. We've looked at this incredible passage today to see why, God, to see why Paul wanted to go to Rome and what he wanted the Romans to know. He wanted them to know he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He emphasized three truths about the gospel. The gospel is God's power for salvation. It reveals God's righteousness, and it's received by faith. So as we wrap up our time together this morning, how can we apply these truths and put them into practice in our lives? If you're not a Christian, you need to realize that you cannot earn righteousness or a right relationship with God by being a, quote, good person. God's righteousness, wow, I have no idea, and I'm sure you have no idea either what's causing that. We'll, we'll, we'll power, we're almost done, we'll power through it here. Hopefully we'll get it fixed before the next service, but anyway. Uh, you can't get into a right relationship with God by being a, quote, good person. God's righteousness is received by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from any good works that we can do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If you've never put your trust in Christ, acknowledge that you've been wrong to think like most people do, that we can be good enough to get to heaven based upon the good things we do. Make today the day that you put your trust in in Christ, that you receive God's righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Second, and final application I have is this, pray that we would be bold with the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, and he wasn't ashamed to ask others to pray that he would be bold with the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul said this, 
Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. We should pray that we'd be bold with the, with the gospel. And if we really want to reinforce that, we should ask others to pray that we would be bold with the gospel as well. In fact, this week in our small group or our community group, one of the gals asked us all to pray that God would give her a bold opportunity to witness at the funeral she was going to, which was yesterday. After the funeral yesterday, she texted us and she told us, God answered my prayer. I was asked to read scripture during the service today and I was given several verses from Romans explaining that dying in Christ leads to eternal life. Then as we were leaving the church, the deacon in priestly robes stopped me and asked if he could ask me a question. He asked what my understanding of eternity was. I shared with him the gospel message and had a lovely conversation about time and, about time and timelessness of heaven. Afterwards, her husband said, oh my gosh, my wife was just trying to convert a priest. <laughs> but if we pray and ask for boldness and ask others to pray for us that we will be bold with the gospel, it's a prayer that God really does want to answer. So I'd like to close the message this morning with the words of the whole old hymn that I've mentioned earlier, I love to tell the story because I think it sums up well the truth of how the gospel changes everything. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. I love to tell the story more wonderful it seems than all the golden fancies of all our golden dreams. I love to tell the story it did so much for me and that is just the reason I tell it now to thee. I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation in God's own holy word. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. And the chorus is, I love to tell the story, will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, may we grasp these three truths about the gospel that Paul shared with the Romans, that it is your power for salvation, that it reveals your righteousness, and especially, Lord, that the gospel is received by faith. Lord, if there's anyone here who's never put their trust in Christ alone, I pray that they would repent, turn to you, and pray today, and that this would be the day that they receive the righteousness which comes from you only by faith. And Lord, may we follow Paul's example of not being ashamed of the gospel. May you fill us, Lord, with such love and gratitude for what you've done for us that we too love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.